We get uh, started in a word of prayer, and we'll get into the lesson today. Father, thanks so much for this day. As we examine this most important topic of the deity of Christ, I hope ask you to open our hearts and understanding that we may see and comprehend to the best of our ability this great truth. Thank you for this opportunity to study and for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Um, today we're going to be talking about the deity of Christ. Um, by the way, the sign-up sheet's going around, so make sure you uh, sign in your uh, attendance. Um, this is very important, this concept of the deity of Christ. And uh, the reason it's very important is this is one of the irreducible facts of our Christian faith. I was listening to some uh, messages this week, and uh, in there it was discussed, the, really the push in modern evangelicalism, to try and to... Um, reduce the number of things people need to know to be a Christian down to almost nothing. There's great pressure to do that. Um, there are some people that have a problem with saying, well, do you really, when it comes to the gospel, do you really believe that people need to know who Jesus is in order to be saved? I was just talking to a friend of mine who's going to Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's saying he ran into a student down there who was trying to figure this out. Now, there's a problem. You're going to seminary and you're trying to figure out whether it's necessary to believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's so ludicrous, you don't even know how to respond to something like that. You know? Um, I told him, I said, the next time this guy tells you that, let me know and I'll get on a plane and come down and slap him. Um, <laughs> because it's... it's how, can you, how can you come to salvation and not believe that Jesus is God. How can you? You can't. You can't. Um, I was reading another book by a guy, not a book, but, but a quote by him, and he basically said, if you're all by yourself on a desert island, and you know there's nobody around but you and a bunch of coconut trees, and a bottle washes up on shore, and there's a fragment of scripture in it that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you at that moment believe what that says, you're going to heaven. You don't even know, need to know who Jesus is. You don't need to know what he did. You don't need to know anything about him. Just believe and you'll get there. Um, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible teaches that in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be a believer, there's an irreducible set of facts that you need to know about God, you need to know about Christ, you need to know about sin. And one of those is that Jesus is God. And that he took your place on the cross. It's, there's two pieces to this. There's the person of Christ. You've got to get the right person of Christ. That's very important. But then you've got to get what he did right. See, that's the problem in Catholicism today. Catholicism has Jesus as God. They have him as deity. They have him as the sinless son of God. But they don't have the work of Christ down correct. All Christ does is give you a jump start. And then it's up to you to finish the job. And you really need Mary, his mother, to help you because, uh, you know, he's sort of hard and sort of uh, non-caring. And his mother, get on his mom's good side and she'll put in a good word for you. In fact, there's a great push, I don't know if you know this, there's a great push in Catholicism today to make Mary co-redemptrix. They, they practically believe that now, but they want to officially make it. You know what that means? That means that if the Pope tells you this, then as a good Catholic, you must believe that not only does Jesus save you, but Mary, his mother, saves you. She is a co-redemptor along with Christ. 
That's the push. And that was the push of John Paul II, who just passed away. He, he, he worshipped Mary more than he worshipped Jesus. Folks, you've got to get the right Jesus. You've got to get the right God. You've got to get the right facts about Jesus. You've got to get the right person and work down. Now, it's not that there's a tremendous amount of this stuff that you need to understand. But there is an irreducible minimum. And one of those facts that we need to understand is that Jesus is God. He is not a God. He's not like a God. He is God. He is the God of the Old Testament. We talked about the Trinity. We've got to believe that. Now, we don't need to understand that because none of us will. But we need to believe that Jesus is God. The scripture has passage after passage after passage claiming this. Now, one of the problems you get is people say, yeah, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Wrong. See, what they say is, well, the, the early church, they wrote that back in. You know, they, they made him into something that he never intended himself to be. Or if you're Kenneth Copeland, hopefully none of you in here listen to Kenneth Copeland. If you do, shame on you. You need to repent of that. But if you listen to Kenneth Copeland, he's on record as saying he had Jesus appear to him personally and tell him that uh, he was not God. Yeah, he's bad news. He had Jesus, and he wrote this down in his uh, newsletter. He said, I had Jesus appear to me, and uh, Jesus said, I never claimed to be God. I just claimed I knew him and walked with him. Look, folks, is Kenneth Copeland going to heaven? That's not a trick question. No, he's not. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you can't be saved, period. There's no, there's no second, you don't even need to think about that one, all right? How do we know that Jesus is God? Well, it's throughout the scripture. Number one, Micah 5, 2. But thou, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days, from everlasting, the King James says. Now, what do you know about Bethlehem? Who's born there? Jesus. Jesus. There it is. His goings are from, whose origin is what? From old, from ancient days. He, th- this talks about his pre-existence. Now, Jesus had a human beginning as the son of Mary. But his eternal existence as deity was eternal. He never had a beginning. There was never a time when Jesus didn't exist Isaiah 9, 6 is a great one. For unto us a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's this? Mighty God. Mighty God. Now, what one thing do you know about the Bible when it talks about idolatry? Who are you to worship alone? God, all right. In fact, it was so deeply ingrained in the Jewish mindset that if you were not to believe, if you believed anything other than God, you were stoned. Idolatry is a very serious thing. And here it's claiming that this child that is born is going to be called Mighty God. And look at that. Everlasting Father. What's that refer to? Eternality. This is not... Jesus did not have his beginning as a child in a manger. That's where he stepped into time as a human. But he existed from all eternity past. He is God. He's not a God. He's not like God. He is God. Yeah. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father's like? Look at me. You want to know what he is like? I'm the representation of him. 
John 17:25 Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, now what existed before the world existed? God. That's it. God. Now some say, well, you know, what that means is he created this world. No. What John is talking about here is not world as in just this planet. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about creation. Christ existed before creation. The only way Christ could exist before creation is that he is God since that's all that was there before creation. There wasn't anything else. And don't let the Jehovah Witnesses tell you, no, it just means that the Father created Christ. That was the first thing. And then Christ created all the universe. So technically Christ was there before the world existed, but he was still created. That's double talk. You don't need to go down there. Hebrews 1, 5 through 9. We talked about this last week. We went through this uh, in great detail. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Today you are my son, you are my son, today have I begotten thee. What's it talking about there? Well, there was a time when the second person of the Trinity stepped into time and became the son to represent the father to us. Did God ever say that to any angelic being? No, it's to the son. And see, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, the whole book of Hebrews is to show the superiority of the new covenant over the old. It's not that the old is bad. The Hebrew writer does not say the old is a bad covenant. The old is a good covenant. But the new is a better covenant. And why is it a better covenant? Well, it had a better mediator, Christ, not the angels. It had a better, it had the, the son, not the servant. It was mediated by the blood of Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats. It's an eternal covenant, not a temporary one. It's of the priesthood of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, not of Aaron, that passed away when the high priest died. And he had another one come along. Christ is superior. The, old, the new covenant is superior to the old. And he starts out by showing that Christ is superior to the angels because Christ is the Son. He's the eternal Son. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All these are quotes out of Psalms. And again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, Let all the God's angels worship him. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Who are the angels of God to worship? God. So God is saying when the Son comes into the world, all the angels are to worship him, which implies that he is God. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 139. His, the, the angels are God's servants. They're his messengers. But of the Son, not the angels, the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. Now look, you didn't even have to learn Greek or Hebrew to figure this one out. It's pretty clear here. Just read it. You're left with the inescapable conclusion that Jesus is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Go figure that one out. God, your God, but your God. <laughs> the only way to understand that is Jesus is God. He is not created. He is eternally God. How else can you prove that Jesus is God? Well, if you want to prove that Jesus is God, you look at the things that God does, his attributes, and you say, well, does Jesus have those same attributes? That's a giveaway. 
What about eternality? What do we mean by eternality? Now, we talk about this in the doctrine of God. We're all eternal beings, right? Because we're all going to live forever. But we're eternal one way. God is eternal two ways. He always was and He always will be. We always will be. We never always was. We had a beginning. John 8, 58, one of the great statements of deity in the New Testament. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is in this discussion with the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they said, look, you're not even 50 years old yet. You claim to have known Abraham. What's, you know, what is this? And Jesus is making a claim before Abraham was, I am. Now, what do we know about this I am word here? This I am. If you're the average Jew and somebody claimed to be I am, what do you, what do you know? They're claiming to be God. Now, you know, all the, all the liberals and the cults say, well, you know, they, that's not what he really meant there. That's not what Jesus really meant. Oh, yeah? Well, what did this Jews do after he claimed this? They wanted to kill him. They, they figured it out. The Jews figured out what the scholars didn't. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Yeah, it's nothing more than the little God theory of Copeland, Hagen, the word faith movement, all that. God has, just as cats have little kittens, God has little gods. You're all little gods. That's heresy. Well, what do you know about the end days? People are going to rise up claiming to be God and claiming to be the Messiah, and we expect this. The problem is, we should not buy into this. As the, as the church, as people who are born again, as people who know God, we should not be messing around with this kind of stuff. By the way, this is out of the, something called the Course in Miracles. If you ever heard about that, just stay away from it. It's a course that was channeled to a lady by demons. And it has a whole big section there on Jesus, and basically says Jesus is not really God. Do you understand? Let, let me, if you're Satan, what are you going to try to get, what are you going to try to do? Deceive. Okay, now how do you deceive? What's the best way? Who do you attack? Well, she's dumb enough to file under that. But, but what do you attack? You copy the things of God. You change them just a little bit. You know? And it doesn't matter what you change. Yeah, I understand. Satan doesn't care what you believe. Just don't believe the truth. He really doesn't care whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Mormon, whether you have a witness, whether you're Whatever. He doesn't care. He does not care what your religious persuasion is. Just don't believe that Jesus is God. Don't believe the truth. That's all. Believe anything else. Doesn't matter. Actually, I have to say, too, you know, I've been really angry that Oprah and what she does, but they gave some excerpts from her, too, which makes me kind of feel sorry for her. She talked about two graves in the Baptist church until 227, and at 27, she was a pastor talking about how God was jealous for her. And she misinterpreted that and got hard at that point in terms and had decided that there's more than just one way to God. Jesus isn't the only way. Mm-hmm. And she confronts Christians regularly on the show that she's doing for 
The, the, the difficulty is a lot of these people are deceived themselves. And, and we need to understand something here, too. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, what would you believe? Probably the same thing. You, you, or something. You know, we like to say, well, well, we'd never believe that kind of stuff. Really? You really wouldn't? Don't, don't give yourself too much credit. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, I would not be a Christian. I wouldn't believe this stuff. This is crazy. This is lunacy. The only way I believe this is because God opened my heart, God opened my mind, and God gave me the sight to see it. That's why I believe. I wouldn't believe otherwise. I have a degree in physics. You know, if I can't see it and prove it, forget it. It ain't, it ain't real. But God revealed himself to me. And, and, and instead of, you know, you look at these people and there's part of you that gets angry and upset and mad. But these people are deceived. They're deceived themselves and they need prayer. You know, and, and we need to understand and, and not get to the point where we're so arrogant to think that, well, we would never believe that kind of silliness. You, you know, think about it. You believe in a place you've never been to. Anybody been to heaven and back? In spite of the books in the bookstore, have you been to heaven and back? Nobody's been to heaven and back, all right? So you don't need to read those books. They won't tell you anything. No one's been to heaven and back. So you believe in a place you haven't seen. You believe, you believe in a Savior you haven't talked to. Jesus ever just talked to you and you hear him audibly? No. You believe in angels. You ever see an angel? You ever see heaven? You ever see God? Personally, I mean, visibly. Did you, have you ever visibly seen God? See it. You know, when you look at it that way, we're all nuts. But why? Because God has given me... And this is, what, this is the thing that Hebrews 1.6 says. Faith brings reality to things you don't see. Faith brings the invisible God real to me. Why? Because of faith. And where does that faith come from? Him. God gives me the faith to believe and I understand it. And that's the only way anybody's going to believe. But we need to be very careful. And this is a hill to die on, folks. This, this is one of those things that are non-negotiable. You can't give any any quarry on it. This You have to believe this. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal God. I existed. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, this is talking about Christ. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, by the thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all this holds together. He is before all of creation. So what does that mean? He's eternal. He has eternality. He has the quality of deity called eternality. And not only that, but Christ is the one that holds this universe together. He's the one that holds everything together. He is God. Self-existence. We've talked the aseity. means to be self-existent. Uh, Christ's existence does not depend on anything but himself. Our existence depends on God, right? If God didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. But God's existence doesn't depend on any external thing. It's Him alone. John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. Again, this is talking about Christ being the Creator. And since Christ is before anything that was created was created, that means he was uncreated. 
He's self-existent. Same thing in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Christ is self-existent. I'm not self-existent. My existence depends on God. It depends on His moment by moment, second by second, upholding of the universe and of the creation. Do you ever think of that? What God does to uphold creation? Because if He didn't for a split second, everything would go back to the nothingness it came from. God upholds all things. Christ is the one that does this. Um, how about omnipresence? John 1.48, Nathaniel said, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, Jesus was not under the fig tree, but Jesus knew Nathaniel was under the fig tree. Now, this is a heavy, this is something that's hard for us to understand. When Jesus was incarnate, when he became the, second, when he became the Son of God, when he became incarnate, he was localized, yet he was infinite. Go figure that one out. You can't. You can't figure that one out. Yes, and we're going to get to that in the kenosis. So we're going to get there. One of the one of the heretical, just as a just a little wet your appetite a little bit. One of the heretical things is that well, when Jesus became man, he gave up deity. All right, he gave up attributes of deity. No, he didn't. Can you give up an attribute? No, by definition, those attributes are an intrinsic part of what God is. God can't say, well, today I've decided I'm not going to be omniscient. Or today I've decided I'm not going to be wise. I'm going to do something really stupid today. Or I'm going to decide this. God can't do that. They're an intrinsic part of who God is. You can't separate them from God. And neither can you from Christ. So therefore, when Christ became man, Christ withheld all attributes of deity. He could not give them up. What he could do is not exercise them. We're going to talk about that. But he could not give them up. If Christ had given up being God when he became a man, what would have happened to the universe according to Colossians 1, 16 and 17? It would have fell apart. It would have gone back to nothing. We don't understand that. He, he, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the, in the mystery of the, what we call the hypostatic union. The union of Christ as being God and man and how that fits together. We're going to be talking about that. But Jesus is God. Jesus is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time, but yet he is localized as Jesus. And I don't understand how both of those go together. That's part of the mystery of the Incarnation. sorting it out <laughs> you're sorting it out yes what, what just what we're going to talk about this in more detail and get to the kenosis but basically what in the kenosis what Christ did is Christ number one he veiled his glory right because yeah. if he hadn't he would have fried anybody around him he veiled that glory all right 
And that's, in fact, in John, he says, I want the glory that I have with you before time began. He's looking forward to the return to that glory, but he veiled his glory. It also, he submitted his will to the will of the Father. So although, and to the Holy Spirit who guided him, right? So that the miracles that Christ did, he did not do of his own volition. He did rather through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, could he have done them on his own? Sure, he's still God. But in the incarnation, everything Christ did, he submitted himself to the will of the Father, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So in those cases, he gave up, and, and theologians call it, he gave up the independent use of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. All right? He gave up the independent use of those because his use of those divine attributes was guided by the Holy Spirit and by the will of the Father. Did Christ know everything when he was on earth? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense as God, he could have known anything he wanted to know in the sense that he limited his knowledge to that which the Father had revealed. Now, that's a tough thing for us to comprehend. That's how you comprehend, for instance, when Christ said, well, no one knows the day or the hour of my return except the Father who is in heaven. Does that mean that Jesus could not have known it? No, it just means that in his incarnation, he limited his knowledge. He limited his use of his attributes to those things that the Father and the Spirit guided him to do. He did not just independently use them. On the cross, he said, I can, I can call right now and I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal. Now, who commands the angels? God does. God commands the angels. But he didn't, right? Because he submitted himself to the will of the Father. He gave up his divine prerogatives for that incarnation, for, the work of the, for his work that he did on the earth. Although he had these attributes, he did not exercise them. But he still had them. That's the kenosis. Yes, that's that's the kenosis. Mm-hmm. He gave up his divine prerogatives, not his attributes. His prerogatives as deity. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He submitted himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's why, for example, when you know the Pharisees came along and said, Well, you know, we know how you're doing this. You're doing this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. How did Jesus respond? Well, yeah, he said, how can a house be divided against itself? But he says, you know, you can't be forgiven that, not only in this age, but the age to come. Because what are you doing? You're ascribing the works that I'm doing to the demons. You're doing it to spite to the Holy Spirit. That's an unforgivable sin. When you, when you say that, that the things that Christ did, the, the powers, the miracles, and all that that he did, was by the work of demons, Jesus didn't take that very easily. In fact, he told them, he said, you can't be forgiven of that sin. Why? Because everything Christ did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. What caused him to go into the wilderness? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Christ lived... Look, look at it this way. Christ lived his entire life completely led by the Holy Spirit. In a complete 100% submission to the will of the Father in everything he did. And although he had the right at any point in time to exercise his divinity and do anything he wanted to independently, he did not. 
because that wasn't the plan. And that's why when we look at the kenosis, we see this tremendous humbling of Christ who gave up his divine prerogatives, who willingly became a servant externally. He allowed himself to be hungry, to get tired. Not only that, he had to deal with 12 jokers. Think of that. And those are the best of the best, you know. And to die on a cross, of all of the things, to die the worst possible death imaginable, to pay the penalty for you and me. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a few people you don't want to be in. You don't want to be one of them right now. Um, he veiled his glory. And that, that's what makes Christ so wonderful. Think about it. That's what makes him so wonderful. What he gave up to become one of us, to die for us, to take our place on the cross. I mean, I can't get my head wrapped around that thing. I think about it a lot, and I just... You know, it's one of those things where I, I sometimes tell God, I say, you know, I love you, and yet I know how hollow that sounds because I, don't, I have no comprehension of everything that you've done for me. I have no comprehension of it. Being a believer is such a valuable, wonderful thing that we don't even... I don't, it's going to take us all of eternity to even get close to appreciating what he's done for us. And anybody that thinks that they deserve salvation, they need their head examined. Nobody does. Nobody deserves it. It's, it's wondrous what he has done. And all you can do is just fall down and say thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I don't follow that nonsense. Yeah, it's just, you don't need to go there. Don't worry about that. They, they have the idea that the plants are going to line up and there's going to be wonderful miracle kinds of things. Don't need to worry about that. No. No. They wouldn't worry about it. What Susan said about, you know, getting to be one of those who were crucified, I got to think we were one of them. In a, in a sense, we were. Now, we weren't there slapping him in the face. But, you know, every time you sin, what does that do? It grieves him. It grieves him. And it makes me not want to sin. Yeah. And see, this, the cross, when mankind was at their absolute worst, God was at his absolute best. And that's what makes grace so wondrous, so awesome, amazing. Amazing grace. I mean, that's what it is. Ruth, you're going to... that we were made for that too. 
but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest free. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is who he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. What is that, that idea are the real reason we were made was so that we can love. That's something... Why, why do you love God? He first loved you. He first loved you. And, and folks, I'm just, when I, when the more I think about that, the more my brain just goes around in circles and I just can't get my head around that. The wondrous love that Christ has for us. But when he became a man, what he did is, as we see in the Kenosis, we're going to talk about this more later, he gave up the divine prerogatives to become a man. And externally, what did he look like? Any other Jewish man. Nothing distinct, unique about him. And yet, here's the eternal Son of God walking among us. He also has omniscience. John 2, 24-25, it says that Jesus, he, he knew all people and didn't need anybody to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Christ knew what was in a person's heart before they even said it. He knew what they were thinking on multiple occasions. Remember, it says he knew what they were thinking and he, he responded to that. Now stop and think. See, that's, this is the amazing thing when I think about the love of God. God loves me even though he knows all the bad things I'm thinking. In fact, I can't keep a thought from him, can I? He knows it all. And you know what? He loves me in spite of that. Go figure that one out. Yeah, he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to make us like him, but he takes us where we're at. He meets us where we are. Yes. And then Acts one twenty four, they prayed and said, "You Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship. Who are they praying to? Well, in this case, it's the Lord. Who is the Lord? No, Christ here. And you know the hearts of all men, so tell us who should take the place of Judas. Who should take his place. You know the hearts. And by the way, who, who is the only being in the universe that knows your heart? God, do you know your heart? No, Jeremiah 17.9 says you don't know your heart. You don't know your heart. You're dece- you deceive yourself. We deceive ourselves all the time. We make ourselves out to be a lot holier than we really are. We do a good job of that. How about omnipotence? What's omnipotence mean? All power. Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Where do you get that authority from? The Father. But Christ is God. He has authority. Luke 8, 25. He said to them, where's your faith? They were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who is this then that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Who controls natural events? Only God. And what did Christ do? He stood up and told the storm, be still, and immediately it was still. He had control over the earthly 
weather patterns over anything on this planet. John 10.18, talking about his life, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. Now, you know, a lot of us in here, we can lay our lives down, right? We could do that. Can you take it up again? No. Only Christ could do that. We can all go out and shoot ourselves and jump off a building or something and end our life, but we can't decide of our own free will to get up out of the coffin and walk home. Ain't going to happen. Christ can do that. Christ is God. He has the authority and the power to do that. Immutability. What does that mean? In his character. Talk about the character, nature. God's, God's nature, God's character does not change. Forget the process theology we talked about and the open theism. That's, that's heresy. God's nature does not change. Who he is does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this, this verse here, this is often quoted by the charismatic crowds who want to say, well, we can all speak in tongues because after all, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a misuse of this passage. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. Because if that's the case, we should be killing bulls and goats on an altar in church. That doesn't mean that. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about here is that Jesus' character, who he is, his, his essential being, is non-changeable. He doesn't change like we do. His character is fixed. He is always holy. He will always be holy. He will never become unholy. This, this needs to be differentiated from the fact that in Scripture, on several occasions, God changed his mind, which is a whole different thing from changing his character. Right. He was going to destroy, for instance, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, man of a suit. But Sodom and Gomorrah, if Abraham uh, couldn't find uh, as few as five people, starting with 45, I guess, mm -hmm. or 50. And anyhow, when he couldn't, then, you know, uh, the, the, the underlying essence of that, meaning if he had been able to, you know, then God would have changed his mind and not destroyed the city. And yet, from the eternal perspective, he would never have changed his mind, but from our perspective, he did. Yeah, from our perspective, he did. This is not talking about stagnation here. Well, Jesus is stagnant. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about his character. It's talking about his nature, who he is. Did Jesus Christ receive more glory after the incarnation than he had before? That's not a trick question. Did Christ receive more glory after the incarnation than he had before? He had glory. There's no doubt about it. Philippians 2, where you were. Yes, he did. He did. What do you mean by that? What do we mean by he got more glory? Well, what does it mean to glorify God? What does that mean when we talk about glorifying God? What do we... Right. Now, before the incarnation, you could sit around heaven and talk all day long about this incarnation thing and about, you know, this, you know, rumblings are that Jesus is going to become man and, 
and all of that, and he's going to die, and we don't understand all of that. What happened after the incarnation, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension? And as an angel, what would you see? You would see a side of God that you didn't know existed, right? Stop and think about that. Pretend you're angels in heaven. Pretend you're an angel in heaven. And all of a sudden you see the second member of the Trinity step into time and become a baby. And you're just baffled. What is this? And, and, and even, even in, um, First Peter says the angels desire to look into these things. They're baffled. They, they don't understand why, why is he doing this? And then think of as an angel as you watch this, this second member of the Trinity, God, the Creator, grow up and be mistreated by mankind. And the horror of horrors, you watch him as he goes to a, a trial and he's beaten and put on a cross. And all of you are there, send me, I'll stop it, send me, I'll go. I want to be one of the twelve legions. And then he died. He's buried. He rose again. And then when you start talking about God's mercy and God's love, what do you as an angel understand? A little bit differently. What it really means. Oh, we, we, we heard that God is love, but now we've seen what that means. We've heard that, that God is gracious. Now I see what that means. I've heard of God's long-suffering. Now I see it. I've heard of His mercy, but now I, I understand it a little better because I've seen what He did. Christ got more glory. In the sense that... Now, the love of God is seen. What God is all about is seen. His nature is seen even better. And why did God create the universe to display His character? And what better way to display His character of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy than to go through the cross? God is going to highly exalt Him and give Him a name above every name. Now, it's not, understand what we mean by this. It doesn't, we're not saying glory is some kind of thing that's measured, it's not an attribute of God. In the sense that it's an unchanging attribute. Glory, a large component of glory is what the creation thinks of Him as we view who God is. Alright? Did God have a certain glory before time began? Well, sure He did. But how is God's glory manifested? How is God's character, who He is, His, His person, His attributes, how are those displayed? It's displayed in the creation. It's displayed as we view God, as we understand more about Him, as we see His character. That's when we understand it. And to glorify God means nothing more than I display who He is. I act like Him. If people want to know who God is like, they should be able to look at me and get a little smattering of what Jesus is like. Now, there's no way I'm going to perfectly do that, right? There's no way... Think of yourself as a tiny little mirror reflecting the sun. There's no way you're going to reflect the full glory of the sun, are you? You can reflect a little bit of it. When people look at you, who do they see? Do they see Christ? Do they see God? Do they see 
godly character. That's what it means to glorify God. So in a sense, yes, Christ did get more glory after the incarnation than he did before the incarnation because it was thought of in theory, was thought of in and just uh, something that, that was talked about is now seen in a tangible way when he died for us. He took our place. Uh, glory is also his brilliance, his light, his shining right. that, that started and ended the Bible. Genesis, Revelation. Genesis, the first four days of creation, wherein the first day let there be light and there mm-hmm. was light, but the sun, moon, and stars didn't get created until the fourth day. The glory, the light, was that which happened on the first day. And that is the same. That doesn't change. And that doesn't change. And in Revelation, there will be no need for the sun or stars, for Jesus will be the He's light. the glory. So in that sense, that glory does not change. That's, that's correct. So in that sense, no, he didn't get, he didn't get more bright. <laughs> okay. Before the, you know, after the incarnation he did before. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about that component of glory, which means, what does mean glorify mean? To adore, to adorn. Alright, that's the idea there, to adorn. How, how is his character put on display? Well, it's really put on display at the cross. When we say, oh yeah, we've heard about his mercy. I see it now. I've heard about his grace, but boy, you know, I've experienced it. Now I, I understand what that means when the Bible says God is gracious. I, I heard that God forgives people, but you know what? He's forgiven me. Boy, and we start understanding that. That's that's what we're talking about in this. Just one more, uh, one more uh, uh, reference to his glory was the wilderness experience where he was the pillar of fire and the pillar mm-hmm. of cloud. It was him. His he was the one that was there. Colossians, or Corinthians tells us that. He was there in the pillar. Right. Hebrews 10, 1 through 2 talks about uh, his immutability. You, Lord, who's it talking about? Christ. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they shall be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end. The universe is like a set of clothes. What happens? They get wore out. You roll them up and you throw them away. But you haven't changed a bit. You are the same. Colossians 2.9, this is a very important passage. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that mean? Let's talk about Christ. It says, In Christ the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. What does it mean the fullness of deity? Every attribute, every bit of God was in Christ. He did not give up any attribute of deity to become a man. He did not cease becoming God. He gave up prerogatives, but not his character. Not who he was. Sovereignty, Matthew 28, 18. How many sovereign beings in the universe? One. Because by definition, if you have two, somebody's not sovereign. Right? Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said, All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. First Peter 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. Christ is the eternal ruler of all of God's creation. He has all sovereignty. He alone decides what should and should not be done. This is one of the great truths of Scripture. Jesus is sovereign. God is sovereign. The only way God and Jesus can be sovereign is they've got to be the same. You've got the Trinity. You've got to go with it. 
Jesus claimed to be God. John 10, 27-30. This is one of the great um, claims on eternal security. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now people say, well, that just means they're one in purpose. They're one in you know, what they decided to do. No, that's not what Christ is talking about. That statement right there made the Pharisees' hair stand on They did. They didn't like this. No. What do you mean, You're, you and the Father are one? But not only saying, I give to my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. Folks, if the, you've got to get one thing. You can't lose your salvation. You can't. Because God and Christ are hanging on to you. Now, that, that's... Now, you know, some people say, well, yeah, you can't be snatched out of hand, but you could jump out if you want to. Oh, that's silliness. You fall under the no one there. You can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. And Christ is saying, I and the Father are one. Christ claimed it. John 14, 7 through 9. This is in the upper room. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the exact icon, representation of the Father. John 8:58. Before Abraham was, I am. This is not the early church writing these things back in and putting words in Jesus' mouth like the silly liberals want to make it out to be. That's not at all true. This is Jesus claiming. And you can see by the reaction of the Pharisees and the scribes, what, what, what did they hate about Christ? He claimed to be God. And not only that, that he did miracles to sort of prove it. And that sort of really upset you because you couldn't really say, no, he's not. Because remember, Jesus Christ said, if you don't believe me for the words I'm speaking, at least look at my works. Believe me for my works' sake. That you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. I say, rise up and walk. Who can forgive sins? God. He's the only one. And the fact that Jesus forgave sins implies that Jesus is God. He is deity. It's proven by his divine titles. I'm not going to go through all of this. In multiple places, you compare. One of the things you can do is you can compare Jehovah God in the Old Testament with Christ in the New. And that's what these passages here basically do. Here's, here's God in the Old Testament. Here's Christ in the New. And you know what? They're identical descriptions. Identical. Elohim, mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Elohim appears in there. Who's Elohim? Elohim is the creator God. His name shall be called mighty God. But you can compare these verses here. Adonai is Lord. What does Lord mean? Sovereign ruler, sovereign despot. He is the one who calls all of the shots. Jesus is Lord. Psalm 110.1, Matthew 22.44, Mark 12.36. Again, again, he is called Lord. He is given the divine titles. He has divine attributes. He has divine titles of deity. He is called Son of God on multiple occasions. Matthew 3.17, Romans 1.4, Hebrews 1.3. Romans 1.4 is an interesting verse here. It talks about his deity and his humanity. Because it says he was declared to be this, 
he was declared to be human by the fact that he is the son of David. And he is seen to be God by the fact that he rose again from the dead. How do you know Jesus was God? He rose again from the dead. The word there, interesting, proharizo means to mark out, clear line. Jesus Christ was forever separated from every other human being that ever existed as being God because he rose again from the dead on his own accord. He's the first begotten. We talk about what that means, prototokos, the preeminent one. Not the one born in time. He is preeminent. He also calls himself son of man. Son of God and son of man, both. How about Revelation 1.18? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. A to Z. He's called Lord. What's that? We're going to go in detail through Philippians chapter 2. But he's given a name which is above every name. What name is that? Lord. You know, every, being, every human being that's ever existed is going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. You're going to do it now, voluntarily, or you're going to do it involuntarily in eternity. But you're going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. There's no way around it. And of course he's given the term, the eternal word. In the Old Testament, I'm going to quickly go through this. In the Old Testament, you see him as the angel of the Lord. Remember, see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. That's referring to a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And the way you can easily see that is if you compare these passages here, you go through those passages, this is some homework you can do. Go through those passages, you will find that the angel of the Lord has the qualities of deity. And one of them, for example, in Judges there, where Manoah and his wife see the angel of the Lord, they say, we're going to die because we have seen God. The angel of the Lord is God. It's proven by his work in creation. Proven by his ability to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And not only that, who's going to be the eternal judge? Christ. God, has, God the Father has given all judgment to the Son. He is the judge of all. It's proven by the fact that he is worshipped. Who are you supposed to worship? God alone. And yet, Christ is worshipped. On multiple occasions, he receives worship. Now, it's interesting, whenever an angel received worship, what did the angel do? Stop. Get up. I'm created. But Jesus accepted worship. And that leads us, leads us to the humanity of Christ that we'll talk about next week. The important thing to remember as we look at this is that Jesus, folks, is God. There's no way around it. I'll have those notes next week. Yeah. Jesus is God. He is deity. It can be proven throughout the scripture. This is not a doctrine that hinges on one obtuse interpretation of some obscure passage. This is throughout the New Testament, throughout the Scripture. And Christ says, search the Scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, and they are the way that testify of me. He is God. Okay. Just one last thing about Jesus being the judge, uh, the Father has given all judgment to the Son, the great white throne judgment, and the beam of feet judgment, I used to believe, because I was taught, that the great white throne was God the Father and the leader of the people, Jesus the Son. Now I know that they're both Jesus. They're both Christ. So those guys that slap Christ in the face are going to stand before him and give an account. Nobody gets away with anything. 
Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time of study. And I pray that we would be convinced in our own hearts that you are God. And that Jesus is God. He is 100% deity. We were not going to understand that. We are not going to comprehend that. But we accept it by faith because that's what you told us is the way it is. And we thank you for this time of study in Christ's name. Amen.